This is Product by Design, a podcast by Prodigy, where we explore technology, artificial intelligence, user experience, product management, and the philosophy of building products and companies. Welcome back to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and this week we have another awesome guest with us, Kurt Schreiber. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kyle. It's great to be here. Well, let me do a quick introduction of you, Kurt, and then we'll dive into, we'll let you expand on that and, and dive into a number of questions. But Kurt is the Chief Creative Officer at VSA Partners, a brand-led customer experience agency that works with companies like Nike, IBM, and Harley-Davidson. And throughout his career, Kurt has been honored by several design and communication organizations such as AIGA and Cons Leon's Lions. I don't even know, Con Leon um, and Cooper Hewitt. So you'll have to tell me how to pronounce that one. Yeah, it's just sort of like Con, C-O-N, is what, what, what you pronounce. I know, I always, it always... Con. Uh, screws me up, yeah. Yeah. Well, Kurt, again, I'm really, really excited. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, thanks, Kyle. Um, yeah, I'm... Um, you know, I've always uh, been an admirer of art and design growing up. And um, so, you know, over the years, my design experience has spanned many mediums. I've, I've done retail design and investor communications, and packaging, cor- even corporate interiors, museum experiences. And, uh, of course, now it's uh, primarily a brand systems. That's what um, I spend most of my time on today. And, and um and BSA has, has become really well known for that. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to dive into a number of the different experiences that that you've mentioned. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you like to do outside of the office? Well, outside of the office, it's um I don't spend much time outside of the office. I work a lot and I love working. So, but the other thing I I, I do um I have a hobby. I have a couple of hobbies. Uh, but I do like gardening and cooking, um, especially. And um, when I really want to uh, hit the outdoors, I, I downhill ski and also uh, ride motorcycles. Awesome. Those are those are some great hobbies. And I know we'll talk a little bit more, especially about some of the motorcycles as we go through. But I want to dive into a little bit more about your experience. So maybe tell us a little bit more about your journey and what brought you to VSA and into your current role. Well, like I said, I've always appreciated um, art and design and, and oftentimes um, people will use those terms interchangeably. But I think one thing that I pay a lot of attention to are actually the differences between art and design. You know, for the most part, you know, artists create to express themselves and designers create for someone else. And so as a role, uh, you know, in my role as a designer, you know, there's certainly an art form to what I do. And actually, you know, beauty and attractiveness is a really important part of my job. But um, I really view the designer's role as establishing a real strong relationship with the client. It's like the one of the most important parts of my job. And that's something I've got a great passion for. And um, primarily because of my experience has been that great relationships lead to great work. It, it's also helpful in running a successful business. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm interested in maybe some of that overlap between the, the art and 
the the design because I like that distinction that you made that you know artists kind of create for themselves and designers are creating really for for someone else. How much have you found that there? How much have you found there is art in the design that you do, and vice versa? Well, if you just think about like core sort of principles um, or elements of of art and and design, you know, there's uh, color, color theory, um, composition. There are, are uh, materials uh, that are similar as well. So, kind of, you know, some of the actually tools now as well. I mean, artists are using you know computers and computer aided design uh, tools to uh, create their works of art. Um, but I think that when you look at kind of the, 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 the thinking, um, and the tools, the methodologies and the components of what both the artists and the designer do those, that has a lot of overlap, but it's like, it's like the purpose or the intention of the creation. You know, one is to express, you know, when I say them themselves, it's a, it's an idea or it's a principle or it's a belief they may have. But designers are really problem solvers. And what that means is your problem, you're solving for the problems for someone else's problems. Yeah. I think that that's a, a great way to put it and great to highlight some of the overlaps because I think that they're definitely there. You, you mentioned, and I mentioned at the beginning, you've worked with a lot of different brands. Uh, what have been some of the, the biggest lessons that you've learned in working with some of these large and and well-known brands, or even maybe some of the the lesser known brands that you've worked with? Yeah, well, there's, there's I've had so many mentors and um, and so many uh, great collaborators over the years. But one that one lesson that comes to mind is uh, one I learned uh, working with um, the Davidson family, the Harley Davidson family, and uh, for over a decade we did some tremendous work, you know, dealership design. Um, all uh, types of marketing and communications and event design. So it was really a, a pretty amazing experience. And arguably, Harley Davidson is one of the best brands on the planet. But in um, in working with Willie G, who is the uh, great grandson, um, he is he was designing motorcycles at that time. So his his primary job was to design um, the bikes and. He had this really interesting kind of secret to what, um, you know, the way he approached his work. And, you know, I think every, if you're a motorcycle enthusiast, you, you know the V-twin, right? It's, it has an iconic shape. And, of course, Harley is really well known for its, its sounds. It comes from the V-twin and pipes and stuff like that. But, but what makes that V-twin so special in the intention of the design is the space that really would leave around the B-twin. And so you could sort of see the, the engine, but you could also see the space around the engine in terms of the frame of the bike and, 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 other, and the tank and, and other components that rested closely to it. But that white space actually frames it and it puts the engine on display. And so, you know, when he described that technique, um, to I was very early, probably just a, a few years out of, out of college at the time. But um, but what isn't there is oftentimes as important as what's actually there. And I think it's a really great lesson. It's one that I use all the time. Um, I think of it as just reduction. 
I think that that's so good. You know, being just like you said, what isn't there is just as important as what is there in design because it can frame or it can allow for those different feelings or visuals that you're trying to create. I'm interested because you mentioned, you know, not just the design of, of Harley, uh, of the motorcycles, but also a variety of different designs. So design of the showrooms and design of, mm. you know, some of the, maybe some of the other uh, assets or aspects of Harley Davidson, you know, yeah. what, what was that like working on, you know, the design of some of those different things? Well, there is, you know, the retail designs are interesting because Harley doesn't own any dealerships yet. It has like six or 800 of them across the country. And, and um, so they're all independently owned. And um, of course, in the 80s and the 90s, Harley's got incredibly popular, maybe up to 2000, 2010. Um, and uh, so these dealerships, so these dealers were building these massive dealerships and some were on brand and some maybe were off brand. And so a big part of what I did at that time was develop a system so um, it could be universally embraced across all dealerships. Well, one thing that we did, which I thought was particularly interesting, was to, you know, with a, with a retail environment, especially a dealership, you, you can spot a dealership from miles away because of its signage. And so when we thought about the principles of this dealership design, we wanted to make sure the Harley-Davidson brand the idea of the company, you know, the experience that you're anticipating arrives at every step along the way as you come closer and as you enter and experience the dealership itself. So from a mile away, from a block away, standing outside the front door, looking in the windows, as you pass through the door, what is the first thing you experience? And then as you gradually make your way through the store, it's like down to every single detail, every single hang tag, what is the Harley Davidson experience and how is it uniquely them? Uh, so, you know, lots of learnings um, from, from that, from the retail experience in particular. I think that that's so good because it really comes down, like you're talking about, to the overall experience from, and this really can go for anything, you know, from going into a showroom or a dealership or you know, the experience that you have coming into, whether it's uh, a product or software or anything, really taking into account all of those different pieces, you know, experiencing it from the outside. And then when you're there, and then when you're coming into it, and then all throughout, because all of those things are part of the, the customer journey or the user journey or the user experience and really thinking through what all of that looks like. And I think that's a great illustration of it, the dealership part, because it's a very physical, you know, a, a thing that you're you're doing, but it's so applicable to so many other areas of design. Uh, to totally. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, they are, when we were working with Brand Jordan um, on some materials um, years ago, one of the things that um, the 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 team that designs the shoe. Um, uh, embraced was that, you know, we, when you design a Nike sneaker for Michael Jordan, you want to be able to, you know, if you're in the third, you know, section of the stands, you want to be able to look down onto the court 
and you want to be able to see something iconic about that shoe. You want to be able to recognize that shoe from afar. And then as you come closer and as you hold the shoe in your hand, there are levels of detail that you come to appreciate as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, exactly right. The whole experience. I'm interested in in your perspective as you've worked with many brands. What makes a good brand? Hmm. Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, branding is like principally what what we do. We do a lot of stuff, but we do a lot of branding. And and you know, companies come to us at different stages, and and sometimes the brand is strong, sometimes it. But um, it isn't, and it needs to be stronger. But um, I've always felt like a good brand starts by knowing who they are, what they stand for, what they believe, you know, what what guides them, um, you know, their North Star, so to speak. Um, but I think brands that have a higher level of confidence in who they are and what they believe ultimately are stronger brands in the marketplace. Oh, they have a good, that's a good start. I should say, I sometimes think of this as a brand purpose or brand character, but then I think great brands take it one step further. I think that, um, you know, the closer you can align your promise, the brand, the promise that a brand makes and the actual experience or how the brand actually performs, the closer that's aligned the stronger your brand is. Now, so it's not about like always being premium because you can be premium and you can under-deliver and you can disappoint. You know, airlines is a really good example. Like I, I think about airlines a lot and, you know, I always say I fly a lot, but, you know, like Spirit Airlines and Southwest Airlines promises a certain level of experience. That's its promise. And that's a level of experience that you actually get. So those, ends up, those end up being very, very strong brands. I think there are other airlines that promise a more premium experience, and then they have a dip, they have difficulty fulfilling that experience. So it's not about sort of price point; it's about what you promise and how closely that aligns with the actual experience. I think that is such a good point, where you have the alignment between the the promise or, or the expectations, and then what's actually being delivered and and the experience that a user has. So you can create a really good, you know, good logos and, and good design and, and all of those things. But if that's, if ultimately like the user or the customer isn't experiencing it in the way that they expect, you know, the, the you, you don't really have a good brand. And I think the airlines are a, an amazing example of that because you have Ones that like Southwest that have such a strong uh, reputation and a strong brand and deliver on that. And then you have others uh, that you are constantly disappointed in because they they have a, a certain level of branding or experience that you expect. And you almost too frequently, you're not getting that. And that's where the disconnect is. I, I think that that's uh, yeah. incredibly good. Going along those lines, how do yeah. you how do you build a brand? How do you create this alignment between, you know, the vision that you have, the North star, and then the experience? Well, I typically, you know, if you're building a brand or you're, or you're rebuilding a brand or, you know, I think that's, you know, I oftentimes start with this, like an iconic attribute 
And um, I mean, there's there, there's something about everybody that's uniquely them. And so you have to find out what that is. You have to discover it. And, and sometimes it's a series of moments or a single moment in your history. Um, other times it's something visual um, about a, about your product or it's a functional attribute um, that is um, has been you know consistently deployed you know over over time. Um, sometimes you can build a brand on um, on a service offering or even a warranty. So there there are there are many things that um, you can choose from, but I think to build a brand, a powerful brand, it needs to be iconic and authentically you. Now, that alone isn't enough. It's it's a it's a good start. But you know, when I think about uh, brands and um, they need to be relevant, and so user needs, culture, our society is just, it's constantly evolving and changing. And so, how your brand shows up, and the conversations you have, the engagements that you have, the experiences that you have. Need to be relevant and, and 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 integrated into people's lives. It's like, okay, so you have a great brand. Why do I care about it, right? Um, so those two things are things that I focus on um, when building brand. I love that, and it it makes so much sense. You know the the connection between those two. I'm curious along those same lines because you mentioned it. You know what happens when you're really looking to pivot or change a brand identity or, or, or rebrand, um, how do you approach that? And how should a company or a brand think about that as well? Well, pivoting. Um, so that's, that's also kind of a big part of, of what we do. I mean, most of our work comes from fortune 100 and, and, um, and those alike number one, number two brands in the category, sometimes number threes, and so there's, there's all kinds of ways you can start to think about pivoting, you know, why change an identity, why change your expression. But I think that one easy way to think about it is you can, you can separate brandings into two categories, the founders moment, right? Companies starting up um, or the refounding moment. And the refounding moments to us are really, really interesting because um, they can happen time and time again over the life cycle of a brand and for many reasons um mergers uh, expansion into new uh, geographies or new uh demographics uh, it can happen because you've gone ipo um you know perhaps that company has had a near-death experience and um but it's found its way it's got the opportunity for renewed life so all so those refounding moments are a, a time to pivot, and when you change your brand identity or brand expression, it really does signal to the world that something is different about this organization. Something has changed. So I find those to be really interesting moments, uh, and ones that I think companies can really capitalize on when done right. I. I do, uh, Kyle, I have an example, a, a recent example of, of, of work we did yeah. on a, for a company with a near-death experience. Um, would you like to uh, 
Would you like me to share that? Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Um, actually, you know, it's so interesting because there are lots of companies that had near death experiences. Harley almost had a near death experience, you know, in his days at AMF. I, I, IBM had its own near death experience when, um, you know, during the breakup. So, but one that, um, I love to use an example. We, so we, we engaged with Converse, um, the footwear company back at the time when they were, they had totally lost their monopoly, uh, around, you know, 2010 or so. I think about that time when, when we engaged 2008, but from the seventies to the two thousands, they just plummeted. Uh, Nike, Adidas, Puma, we're all eating their lunch. They, you know, brand Jordan, even, um, obviously. And the company was, uh, near bankruptcy. Um, and then, and then investors and these, uh, two gentlemen, Jack Boys and, and Dave Maddox, um, partnered, uh, chose to work with BSA to help reestablish their, their brand expression at the same time that they were retooling their product. Establishing all new creative relationships and, and new retail strategies. And so, so much was going on inside the company to reestablish it. And at the same time, interestingly enough, Nike went on to, to, to buy Converse, uh, which they still own Converse today. But the, but the brand refresh was a way to really signal that something different was happening in the organization. And, um, and that effort, their effort really helped to reclaim their dominance, um, in footwear. Um, they made the decision to stand for rebellion and optimism at the same time. Um, I think you could see that in the brand today, but they're really celebrating a music sport, you know, art and fashion. And, 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 um, they, they ultimately became Nike's number one performing uh, subsidiary or sub-brand um, for a very long period of time. I love that because I, I think it speaks so much to how you can go about making some of these big changes. I'm interested too, because, you know, obviously there's the initial branding and, you know, some of these potential big changes. How, how have you found or advised or helped uh, your, the people that you work with maybe stay relevant as as the world changes, as things change, maybe not necessarily with an entire new brand expression, but with pivoting maybe some of the messaging or pivoting some of the focus in order to adjust maybe what is a brand that's working, not do an entire rebrand, but to continually to continually stay fresh and 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 relevant as things change. Well, I think you, you know, you look to culture, um, you look to culture and, you know, um, new things that are coming on the scene and in music or in art, um, you look to, uh, technology as well. And technology is, I mean, right now it's like, it's, um, you know, AI, AI has been around for a long time and AI has been incorporated in so much of what what we do today already, but it's been sort of behind the scenes and, and all of a sudden it became front and center, um, uh, not, not too long ago. And so, um, everyone's kind of crazy about it, but it is going to kind of reshape, um, a lot. So I think those, those, those two things, culture 
and technology. And so if you're on top of culture and you're on top of technology, those two things can make a huge impact on your brand and staying relevant. We've obviously seen a massive shift in technology uh, over you know this this past year with like you said it, it's something that has been behind the scenes and incorporated into a lot of technology but now has kind of exploded it into the forefront of everyone's everyone's mind and the discussion and where technology is going and so being able to stay relevant and updated with those things while staying you know true to maybe what is the original north star or the way that you're you're branded but being able to shift as culture changes as technology changes in order to you know, either to capture that moment or you know to just be continue to kind of put that forward and, and adjust and change yeah i'm interested you know managing and working with stakeholders is such an important part of what so many of us do and certainly what you do in design and experience and, and you know part of what you mentioned before is is this idea of stakeholder design you know what what is that and why is working closely with stakeholders so important well there's there's actually kind of a lot going on in this area right now um and um i'll kind of go into sort of like what's happening but just looking back um, there were two kind of, you know, I would, I would say really, really big movements um, in the past 50 years. And, and so first there was Friedman's view of the purpose of a corporation. And Friedman had this view that, that CEOs and board of directors across all businesses uh, embraced. And that was this idea that corporations, the purpose of a corporation was to increase its profits. And the primary stakeholder was the investor. And the, that view has largely held true even to today. And the second kind of major movement, which I think was probably more or less probably IDO, actually, the design from IDO and the, their team who put, you know, from a design standpoint, they put the user at the center. Right. So corporations were putting the shareholder at the center and, you know, designers in the eighties and nineties started putting, started putting the user at the center. So the, the user experience now, so those are two really big movements and arguably there are probably a, a few other ones, but, but I think that in the past people have, or corporations or brands, they've, had to choose or they, their, their temptation is to choose one stakeholder and go all in. And I think that's changing. And we see it changing right now all around us because today companies have much broader responsibilities and a whole range of stakeholders. So for instance, um, employees today, more important than ever. Customers obviously have always been important. Um, the, so, you know, society at large, you know, mother nature, um, the environment is, has become a really critical stakeholder, um, business partners, even politicians and, uh, and society. So it's, um, the, and what's interesting 
is um, corporations are having to juggle all of these uh, stakeholder stakeholder needs, uh, stakeholder demands sometimes. And um, what's challenging is they have oftentimes they have opposing views, right? So employees want one thing, customers want another. Uh, business partners may be looking for something different. And um, so they find, you know, businesses oftentimes find themselves kind of caught in the middle. You know, we see that today right now, unfortunately, with like Bud Light or Target or Disney. You know, they find themselves, you know, in the middle of these opposing stakeholder views. And so I think that one of the things that corporations and brands um, need to do today are uh, design new methods for managing and innovating across the um, multi-stakeholder uh, landscape. Yeah, you've brought up some some really, really good points. And especially as these brands and organizations are now balancing more than just the the shareholder, like you mentioned, or the investor, which I, I think is so important because there's so many more constituents and stakeholders to take into account and that impact uh, companies and impact all of us, the, the world at large. What happens when you have these opposing views and you have these maybe even you know completely opposite desires from one stakeholder group uh, versus another? You know, how, how do you go about balancing yeah. those? You know, uh, it's interesting. I've, I've been working a little bit with Yale and John Awada, former CMO of, uh, of IBM. And um, they're working on curriculum. And they're they're developing methods and models uh, for stakeholder innovation and management, and so it's uh, it's something that uh, there's you know increasing interest and lots of ideas in terms of 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 how you might go about doing this, um, not just managing but also like innovating, or it's not like crisis management. Uh, um, at times it is, but um, but there but it's so much more, and so. Um, folks are really working hard right now at at um, you know trying to sort out the, the best methods uh, for for balancing opposing needs. But uh, uh, you know, one thought that um, we have discussed um, um, around this topic is: uh, Do you remember the scene in Apollo thirteen? square peg in a round hole, you know, the carbon dioxide filter on the spacecraft, it needs to be fixed. And they only have, you know, we need to make this fit into the hole of this with nothing but this, and they dump the box of parts uh, out on the table. And um, what that is, that's a demonstration of exercise and constraint. And so, you know, part of Part of this is um, is about embracing constraint and looking at each of these audience segments and looking at which ones of those can be conjoined. And so, I mean, businesses kind of intuitively do this at times, and there's lots of examples. You know, Nike has examples, American Express in the past, but there are also companies today um, that are are looking at. Um, you know, embracing this way of thinking. It actually starts with 
um, you know, just like Apollo 13, you have to assemble this cross-functional team. And as I mentioned before, you know, that when you look at these audiences, uh, corporations are like, they're, they're, they're siloed around those audiences. So HR is serving employee needs, sales are serving customers, procurement, business partners, you know, marketing, you know, uh, future customers, product development, investor relations, investors. So, so corporations are siloed around these audiences. And so innovation happens when you start, you know, working together. And I, I don't think of this as, you know, designed by committee. Um, it's uh, designed by constraints, by embracing those uh, constraints that each of those constituents might have. I love that. The d- idea of design by constraint and really embracing those constraints as a means to create the best potential outcome or the best potential experience for users. And I love the scene in Apollo 13. I can't even count the number of times I've seen that movie. It, <laughs> it was definitely has been one of my favorites. And this idea of here are the tools that we have. Here's what we need to accomplish. And, you know, in that case, it was life and death. You know, you have to, we have to make this fit. Otherwise, you know, we're not, you know, they won't make it and we won't bring them home. And obviously in, in our circumstances, it's not necessarily life and death situations, but it's still embracing those constraints. Here's what we have. And that ultimately kind of like, I think you mentioned is allows us to create um, oftentimes better experiences when you know we have, here's what we need to do and here's what we have to work with uh, because there's not this, you know, anything goes or, or any, you know, we can do uh, absolutely anything. It's, it's, we have a very set, uh, a number of set constraints and, and working within that I've found often produces some of the best, most creative solutions uh, rather than, you know, not imposing those constraints on ourselves. What, what has been some of your experience as you've done this or as you've helped brands and companies do that? Well, I mean, relative to constraint, I mean, you know, you're faced with constraints all the time. And I completely agree with you. Sometimes some the best creative solutions can come out of constraint because it, it forces you to think about something differently. And when you think about it differently, you oftentimes arrive at a different type of solution. But, you know, the obvious constraints are, you know, time, cost, material. And um, those constraints are real. Um, you know, I think that the designers and marketers and product, you know, designers um, experience those types of constraints all the time. And, um, but there are also, I think, other types of constraints, um, especially when you're kind of navigating, uh, you know, the corporate environment. It's like, uh, you know, approvals, uh, buy-in, you know, there are other, other types of constraints that I don't know, Kyle, if I'm, if I'm answering the question you wanted me to answer. Uh, but I think that, um, but I think that, you know, I, you're, you're sort of like, you know, you're, you're forced to, you know, you know, willingly accept constraints, you know. Uh, I often am. I, I think, you know, when you have something like a blue sky, it's like, you know, anything goes. It's like, okay, well, I'm not. You know, it's like we can go anywhere, you know, it's like, um, but, 
you know, so, you know, we, when you set a parameter, you know, the, you know, the person, the designer who's like le- legendary for, for constraints was, um, uh, Ray and Charles Eames, that, uh, that design duo. Um, they, you know, cause you know, you know, you're, you're manufacturing things like chairs and stuff like that. You know, it's got, chairs got to be a certain, at a certain price point. You have to use certain materials. It has to be assembled in a certain way. It has to be designed in a way that could be maybe stacked or shipped or you know, stored, you know? So, you know, I think that constraint has been something that, you know, designers have been embracing for some time. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, it can be used as a new design tool, even though it's been, um, you know, um, embraced for decades. I love that. And I think it makes perfect sense embracing those constraints and the number of constraints that we potentially have uh, in any, you know, in any product or in anything that we're doing, uh, kind of like you mentioned, uh, whether that's designing things or whether that's, you know, creating software or creating customer and user experiences. Um, <clears throat> this, well, well, what has been, or, or if somebody was looking to really get into design uh, or brand management or any of these areas, you, what advice would you give to them? Uh, maybe somebody who's starting out or, or early in their journey uh, in yeah. order to you know, get into it or grow in their career or grow in their experience. Well, it's pretty interesting because the, 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 the pathway in can be very different. I mean, you can, you can be a writer, um, you could be a strategist. You could be a data scientist. Um, you know, you could be a marketer, um, art director. Uh, now you could be a technologist. Um, you know, it could be a, a developer. Uh, so, you know, I think that your your pathway in um, can be very different. But it, but if you're if you're passionate about brand brand management and um, design systems and product design and so forth. Um, those different paths do lead you to, to a, a similar place of, of creation, um, you know, making things. Um, it's, you know, sort of sometimes it's kind of magical, uh, you know, what you do because it's, it's emotional. Um, it, you know, you, you know, as a, as a brand, a designer, you know, you want to stir emotion. You want to stir someone's soul. Um, you want to make something memorable, um, delightful, perhaps educational. Um, but I think that the, the thing that, um, you know, if you, if I had some advice for someone along the way, along your journey, I would seek to work for what you believe in. And, um, you know, I think to, you know, to, to be in this game, you have to love it. And, um, cause it requires a lot of work, a lot of effort, um, and a lot of time, a tremendous commitment, um, you know, to, to doing this thing well. So, but if you, if you work for, for a brand or for a company, something that you really believe in, and, and that could be like lots of different things, but I think you'll find this type of, 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 of work, this line of work, this industry, 
to be very re- rewarding. And um, so I think that the fact that we all come from so many different places, I think is what makes this also rewarding for me. Yeah. Something that you believe in and something that you love. I absolutely agree with that. And, and even coming from a variety of different backgrounds, like you mentioned, uh, can be truly beneficial both to, to your own experience and to the overall experience that, that we create. So uh, I, I think that's great. Uh, Kurt, this has been a really, really great conversation. And I have a couple of uh, questions to, to wrap us up. But before we get there, uh, where can people find out more about you, about the things you, you're working on now or have worked on in the past? Well, um, <laughs> I guess that's a, great, that's a great question, Kyle. I think um, you know, a lot of my work is, is on, of course, our, our website um, and, you know, vsapartners.com. Um, we're actually redesigning the site right now. So don't go maybe today, but you can go sometime, <laughs> maybe in a few months. Um, but we're going to put a lot of our uh, work up there. And oftentimes it's like new work, but I think we're going to also feature some, um, some uh, prior work that um, really helped define who we are and who we became. So that's great. And if you want to learn a little bit more about me, LinkedIn is a great spot. Perfect. Well, we'll put the links in the show notes. And I, I love that idea of seeing both the current design and things you're working on, as well as maybe some of the the things that defined uh, anything from the past. I love that. Well, I have, a, a like I said, a couple of, of wrap-up questions, and these don't necessarily have to be uh, design-related or uh, brand-related, but have you read or watched or listened to anything recently that you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a publication right now that it's relatively new to me. Like uh, right before the pandemic, I was in a kind of a, a small bookstore, I think it probably in in uh, the West Village, and uh, this this one publication really struck my. It's called Magazine B, and I had n- never heard of it before. Um, it's a magazine that's it's there are no ads. Um, and they, um, they, each magazine is dedicated to a brand. So magazine B stands for brand, but the approach to this magazine is is sort of like a, a documentary, um, in a book. And so, you know, each, um, issue, they feature someone different and they pick brands brands don't pick them they they pick a brand that they love or a topic that they love and they go really 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 deep and so i think the the immersiveness of it is uh quite fascinating um like this total dedication to this brand so i mean all all, most of our favorite brands like you know mr porter or or Lululemon or Airbnb or, you know, they, there's niche brands as well, fashion brands. There's all, all kinds of, um, but they, they really go deep. And so if you're sort of a, a super fan of that brand, uh, you could get like really rich um, material. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting approach. It's like a do- documentary, a documentary in a book. 
And that's kind of the approach. Anyway, they're on issue 98 right now. 98 just came out. Um, and uh, so there's a lot to choose from. But Magazine B, it's published uh, in Korea, interestingly enough, and I think in um, translated to English. That sounds really interesting. And I haven't heard of them before either, but I love that idea of getting a really in-depth story, like you said, almost like a documentary or a book in this magazine form of you know, really in-depth uh, analysis and probably history of you know these brands and some of these companies. I, I think that is awesome. I'll have to check that out. And final question, are there mm-hmm. any products that you have been using or have used recently that uh, you've either enjoyed or not enjoyed and, and want to give a shout out to? Well, you know, I think that I'm such a late adopter to technology, like seriously late adopter. Um, it's like sometimes, you know, I don't know. It's just like I, I, um, I, I guess I like seeing things uh, adapt and develop, you know, maybe before I, I dive in. But uh, one that I'm really highly anticipating and, you know, it's been kind of um, – been discussed and talked about for some time are the new Apple um, VR, uh, the new Apple VR headset. I think that's going to be pretty cool. It's called the Apple Vision. And I just love how Apple designs its products. Um, I love what those, what those products provide. Um, there's a tremendous amount of um, utility uh, and beauty. Uh, that are sort of so elegantly balanced in every one of their products. You know, I've been skeptical on on VR. Um, you know, extended reality, virtual reality, you know, the different types of realities. Um, and I think that um, you know, I, I've used some of the headsets that are out there today, and and they're um, they're you know, I don't know. I just, I, I felt like they, it's not that they disappoint, but they, you know, just as, just as I was saying before, you know, I have a different expectation. Now for Apple, I've got a higher expectation. I think they're going to really, I hope that they nail this um, because I do think that, that that metaverse and Web3 and virtual reality, I mean, I think that that's all you know, tokenization, NFTs. I think, I think we're going to see a lot of really, really interesting um, experiences. So I don't have one yet, but I'm going to get one very soon. Awesome. I, I can't wait to hear more about maybe some of your experience with it and completely agree that it is uh, one of those, uh, probably defining products in, in a space and will probably really shift how, how we approach VR and augmented reality and, and obviously Apple being so good at many of these products. Uh, It'll be absolutely fascinating to see kind of where it goes from here. Well, Kurt, this has been a great conversation and I have thoroughly enjoyed so many of your insights and the things that you have shared with us. Um, And I'm I'm sure everybody who has listened has as well, but I want to thank you again for for sharing all of that with us and uh, for spending the time. Thank you again, Kurt, and we'll talk again next time. 
Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on TikTok at prodigy.co and on Twitter at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on both of those platforms at Kyle Larry Evans. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter Prodigy at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans or check out my Medium publication Prodigy. Of course, you can check out all these links in the show notes.